Hello and welcome to the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. Each episode will bring you the latest news from the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, as well as fascinating interviews with entertainment personalities, government leaders, and community advocates. St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, where Scotland meets the City of Angels. Let's get started. Welcome to another great episode of the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we have such an exciting show for you. I am incredibly stoked. The artistic part of me is jumping for joy, literally. But before we get started, let's talk about who our guest interviewer is. Bethany Weber Rayburn has a background in art history. She's a lover of all things ballet as well as Scotland and has been an avid follower of the Scottish Ballet, which makes her the perfect co-host for today's podcast. So please welcome Bethany Rayburn. Good morning. And our guest today, Christopher Hampson. He is a graduate of the Royal Ballet where he began his professional training at the age of 11. He danced professionally with the English National Ballet, reaching the rank of soloist. Christopher retired from dancing to pursue a career as a choreographer and joined the Scottish Ballet as artistic director in 2012. He was appointed CEO slash artistic director in 2015. Committed to pushing the boundaries of the ballet world, Christopher curated the world's first digital season of the Scottish Ballet in 2017 and has remained at the forefront of digital innovation. Please welcome the inspirational and innovative CEO and Artistic Director of the Scottish Ballet, Christopher Hampson. Chris, thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. This is exciting for me. I love the ballet. So when I <laughs> heard that you are our guest today, I just was like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm wondering if I actually saw you dance live because uh, I had ballet subscriptions to just about everything that went through uh, Southern California. My mother and I would go, so I'm sure I saw you dance live at some point. You may well have done. <laughs> well, um, to get started, I guess let's dig in a little bit more to your career, starting at age 12. Can you share a little bit more about your journey through the ballet world and uh, talk about the path that got you from dancing into actually directing Scottish ballet? Yeah, I think I feel so privileged because my journey within the dance world has been really full um, in that, you know, I, I started out at local ballet school, but very early on, I was performing with a, a ballet company that had just been set up and it was called Northern Ballet Theatre at the time in Manchester. It's now mm. called Northern Ballet. And um, so by the time I arrived at the Royal Ballet School at the age of 11, I was quite well versed to being on stage and actually working with choreographers as well. Um, I remember uh, in my first sort of four or five years before even going to the Royal Ballet School, so I'd have been eight or nine, I'd worked with some really fantastic choreographers. I've been on stage with Rudolf Nureyev um, as part of his Don Quixote, um, when, uh, which company was it? the Boston Ballet were touring to Manchester. Oh. Um, so by the time I arrived at the Royal Ballet School, I felt like I'd done quite a lot. 
But um, my journey through the Royal Ballet School gave me a, a fantastic education in dance, specifically classical ballet. And then through my dancing career, I was really privileged to work with some fantastic coaches, choreographers and directors. And I then evolved into choreographing. My choreographing had run alongside my dancing um, and I kept the two going. Um, I'd won a competition when I was at the Royal Ballet School. Actually, I got a prize, not for choreography the first time, it's for music composition. I'd written a score um, and Kenneth Macmillan gave me a prize um, for that. And then a few years later, I went on to win the competition at the, uh, the senior school, the upper school. And again, that was, so Kenneth Macmillan was the judge there. So he gave me the prize for that too. So there's a wonderful link and lineage as there is in dance, you know, right, right. small family. And then I, as a choreographer, traveling the world, creating works, I also started teaching as well. I love teaching company class. Um, I discovered that on my journey to Atlanta Ballet, actually, I was teaching there and I really felt in the US a, a big difference between the, um, the way that in the US it's quite celebrated to have a portfolio career, to be able to teach, to choreograph, to um, speak, to educate, whereas I felt in the UK at the time, it was, I felt quite pigeonholed. So it was quite liberating to go to the USA and see that that was very accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I took that back with me. And in a way that catapulted me into a sense of wanting to lead um, and wanting to understand what I could do as a leader within um, the ballet world, which brought me to Scottish ballet. So where I say I feel like, like I've been lucky and, and fulsome in my career, it goes from, you know, people to dancer to choreographer to teacher to director to CEO it's kind of hit all the bases along the way oh wow that's fantastic so um in terms of repertoire uh, you've talked about the different companies that you've worked with how would you differentiate Scottish ballet from companies like Royal Ballet or Rambert um what sets your company apart You know, I I love both those companies and we're really lucky in the UK to be part of a fantastic network of national dance companies. Um, And and each company does amazing work. For me, what happens at Scottish Ballet though is I feel we have a distinctive voice. (laughs) There's something we do that is very much us. It's our way of doing things. When I think about just the repertoire, the sorts of full-length evenings we're creating at the moment, um, we we can adapt ourselves. We can do something quite classical. We did my production of The Snow Queen quite recently. Um, But again, it's not a nutcracker at Christmas. It's a different ballet. It's The Snow Queen. So we do that a little bit differently. And then right through to our more contemporary full-length evenings, the subject matters are really relevant um, to our society today. We did a version of A Streetcar Named Desire. We've just done a world premiere of The Crucible, which, I mean, that transcends generations, that story. It doesn't matter where you set that story, it's relevant. And, you know, at the time we were making it, it was really, it was really during the, the kind of Me Too um, period where that had just sort of, 
coalesced and it had energy and it had drive and you could sense how relevant the story was. Um, I think we're hoping to bring that back next year and it will have a different lens on it, of course, um, through everything we've been through this iteration of Black Lives Matter, through the pandemic, um, it, it could have any lens on it and it would still be relevant. So that side's quite important. And then just nurturing creativity. So I love that we blend film and so screen and stage, right. um, bringing along new choreographers and new voices. So I think all of those three areas, for me, coalesce to make us have quite a distinctive voice. So my question, you know, obviously the pandemic has just huge negative repercussions, especially with the arts around the world. But, you know, the Scottish Ballet has been doing digital seasons before COVID emerged, which is amazing. How, how did this come about? And has your digital platform be able to maintain and reinforce your connection with your audience and local communities, especially this past year, since everybody else moved to digital? Yeah, I think you're you're so right. You know, everyone has pivoted towards being on screens, but we we were certainly inhabiting that space about four or five years ago. We saw an opportunity as a we're a relatively small ballet company compared to the Royal Ballet or New York City Ballet. Um, we're we're certainly at the very least half the size of those companies, and. What we discovered that when we put out dance films and stuff on our, our website, we were able to reach a really broad audience, a more diverse audience, an audience that we couldn't actually get in Scotland um, just because the demographics. Um, and there's no, there's, so there's no borders and there's no barriers to scale. So actually online, it doesn't matter whether you're a company of 90 or a company of nine it's the quality of the work because on screen the lens is really the eye to the work and whatever you're seeing on screen is what you're seeing um so the the ability to inhabit that space in it had a sense of equity about it professionally um and really exciting because we were we felt that the work we were putting out there, we were getting instant feedback from audiences, you know, through social media and our social media channels. That connection with our audience suddenly became really powerful. Um, and we started to understand that we could put something out, hear something back immediately and engage in the conversation beyond it. So really when we got to um, our 50th anniversary, which was just the year before last, mm -hmm. um, we wanted to be, absolutely present on stages around Scotland, like we always are, but we really wanted to go deep into our communities and to make that connection. And doing it through social media and digital networks is the best way you can reach so many people. Right. So we embarked, yeah, we embarked on a big campaign um, called the Five Wishes campaign, which was to ask, well, my original idea was actually to ask, was to say thank you to Scotland because you know, people pay their taxes and some of that subsidy comes to the arts and, and therefore to us. So I always think every single, every single person, the five million people living in Scotland, owes a little bit of Scottish ballet. And so I wanted to say thank you to everybody. Um, we realised that would probably take about another 50 years to do that. So what we did was flipped it on our head and asked 
our public and asked our communities, what can we do more? What, what can we do to say thank you for your support? And the, the response is absolutely overwhelming. And again, it was through digital interaction that allowed us to do that. So we had some fantastic events happen through those five wishes, some really, really moving um, stories, everything from some uh, a musician who was is living with Parkinson's who came to conduct our orchestra, um, right through to honoring a wonderful ballet teacher up in Aberdeen who sadly lost her life to breast cancer, but we were able to celebrate her and everything she's done for, for dance students in Aberdeen by, you know, galvanizing our company and landing in their community and, and supporting them in a, in a big performance. We did all sorts of things. It was really, really inspiring. And yeah. I think what we've learned through those digital interactions is just how important it is to have a, have a, correspond, a conversation with your communities um, so that you remain relevant. Um, and then, so of course, when the pandemic hit, with all of that work we put in place, we just went right back into that kind of world and doubled down. So we, we like everyone else, have been doing that now for a year. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. But it's like you were ahead of the game. Because I know that I recently shared the video that the company did called um, Three Graces. Yeah. And it got such a big reaction, especially from younger people who don't necessarily go to ballet performances, but the music. And I was loving it because as an art historian, I'm seeing the little bits of choreography that relate to um, the Canova sculpture, some of the uh, the ancient paintings and things. And I love the way that was all tied in. So it, 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 got, it was a wonderful project that it was made with our we had a digital artist in residence um, mm -hmm. called Zach. And uh, yeah, his work um, is absolutely phenomenal. And what I love about his work, and you were so right, he reaches back to classical mythology and pulls it into the 21st century. And, and he loves living in that space. So I'm glad yeah. he knows that. It was fabulous. The video effects, the music, it was fantastic. Finally, we've just finished, I've just wrapped on uh, two films that we made last week. So they're going to be out next month, I think. So keep an eye out for those. We'll be sharing those. <laughs> so going back to the traditional repertoire um, with a lot of the, uh, the national and large companies, you know, you already brought up the Snow Queen. Um, they do rely on fairy tales, fantasy, tragedies, um, of course, Giselle deals with unrequited love. Uh, everyone is familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet. Do you feel that these themes are still universal? Are they still relevant in the 21st century? Um, how can companies update these classics now? Yeah, I think they are relevant. Um, I think they're timeless stories because they're about the human condition. Um, however, I think it's really important that in ballet, we absolutely um, challenge ourselves with having to tell these stories in a way that lands today. Um, we did a new production of Swan Lake about five years ago. 
And I knew that it would be a really popular title. Of course, you can pretty much print Swan Lake on a poster and not tell anyone about it and they'll buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. But because we're Scottish Ballet, I needed to think of what is Swan Lake today to today's dancers, to their bodies? Um, what, what is it they can bring in their physicality? What is it that we want to say about the unobtainable love, the, the unrequited, unobtainable love story that's at the heart of it? Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to choreographer David Dawson, um, who I've known, well, we were at school together, so I've known him a very long time. But David's canon of work now is such that he has, he challenges dancers to their absolute physical extremes. And I think Petipar in his day was doing that with his dancers. Right. You know, before Swan Lake, there had been nothing like it. And yeah. I knew David would, would approach it the same way, but with, you know, his reverence to the classics is deep and, and powerful. So, you know, commissioning some, someone like David's important because our Swan Lake now has this um, creature-like physicality to the swans. They are powerful, powerful women. And they, they really, in a way, they, they blast into the story rather than sneak in. They, they kind of, they've got a force to them. And, and when they rush out of the story at the end, this man is just left like a husk. I mean, he's like he's experienced nothing like it before. So it's really powerful. So I think being able to look at stories in new ways, I think is really vital. There's always, always a place for a traditional version. Don't get me wrong. And yeah. companies out there that do it beautifully. So I think we're safe. There's, all of that exists. Mm-hmm. But for me, it, it, in order to propel us forward, we've got to relook at them. Now, that's interesting because you're making me think of um, theater school where you have the students who do mask work or do um, animal work. Is that something that your choreographers incorporate as you're starting to bring the choreography together? Or um, is this something they, they have ahead of time? I feel now that choreographers that we bring in are more and more wanting a collaborative approach to their work. So mm-hmm. they are, they're wanting to come in with their own voice, their own accent to their movement. And they're wanting to know what our dancers are going to imprint onto their choreography or, or collaborate with in terms of their storytelling. Um, I found that with, we've had quite a few choreographers that have been highly collaborative. Helen Pickett, American choreographer, mm-hmm. who produced The Crucible for us. Um, wow, you know, she is a force because she, she is so um, creatively naked, <laughs> just creatively naked in front of the dancers. She will, she will live in a, a world of doubt without fear. And I find that remarkable. I watch her rehearsals and she'll be honestly saying, I don't know how to, how to tell this part of the story, help me. Mm-hmm. Wow, and, that, and then the dancers feel empowered. And, and so there's a wonderful transaction there, an artistic transaction, which I think is powerful. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Because if you remember back to the 80s, there was a choreographer in New York, Graciela Danielle. She would have her dancers just do their thing, show your stuff. What can you do? And then she would incorporate their best moves into their choreography in the individual production. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I think that, that crossover between contemporary dance and ballet is now fully formed and and that is not just what we see on stage it's how the works come about from highly um, creative approaches let alone just creating steps and stories you know there's there's a whole texture behind it yeah that's fantastic so um slightly switching gears uh you wrote a response to the guardian regarding diversity in the art form and there's a pretty thorough page on your website about how Scottish ballet is addressing racism and diversity. Um, in the modern repertoire, how does a company update the old chestnuts like uh, La Bayadere, uh, the Nutcracker, Scheherazade, where, you know, the, the 19th century repertoire based on romanticism, these people didn't necessarily travel to the places where these ballets are set. So um, how do you do it today so that the characters that are in the ballet aren't reduced to stereotypes, but also ensure that the stories remain true to their core? Yeah, it's a very complex question because... Um, I think there are a few tensions that need to be held in place in order to produce a work with authenticity um, while ensuring that, you know, we're not, you know, we're not underlining or reinforcing um, stereotypes that really we do not need around us today in the 21st century. So I've sort of got two answers to it. One is, um, you know, the question you, you, you put is how do we update them? And I think that is what we do. We look at some of those works and like La Bayadere, and we look at them and I think we've got to say, what, what is that story saying about the human condition and about the world around that story? And then I think we need to say, ask ourselves, what does that say about us today? Because we're humans, we don't change that much. And then you've got to find out how you're going to fill that gap and who you're filling it with. Who are your characters? Who are you bringing to tell that story? And, you know, I think in doing that, it actually deepens our knowledge of those works. But the other answer I have, which is controversial and sometimes difficult to hear, is I think there are works in, in the ballet repertoire that are very problematic. And I just don't think you do them anymore because <laughs> they are documented now. They are really, you know, if, if for research purposes, we can, it's not cancel culture, you know, it's not canceling them. They exist, they are works of art. One can go back and look at them in context. Do I need to see them on my stage in my town when my town is trying to move forward? <laughs> Probably not. And in, in that sense, I, I don't have any problem with letting go of things because letting, 
When you let go of something, it means you can move somewhere else. I think what the ballet world often suffers from is stepping forward, but holding something at the back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to move forward, you do have to move away from something as well. You can't move forward and take everything with you. Well, you can, you just don't get very far. So Yeah. Because I have read about some companies that have removed the um, the Chinese dance from Nutcracker or uh, Ballet Theater here had a Blackamore in the first act. So, you know, would you take out the entire dance or how, how would that work with Scottish Ballet? Yeah, personally for me, I, you know, we have a Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. Um, that was created in 1972 by our founder, Peter Darrell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Chinese dance, it's all right, you know, it's okay. Um, and I got in touch with Phil Chan, um, who um, heads up Yellowface.org, and it's a fantastic um, resource website to um, put an end to Yellowface. And I reached out to Phil and met him in New York, um, and it was really empowering to hear him speak about the ability to celebrate a culture, of course, once you know a bit more about it. And, right. you know, he sent us away with some things to think about, um, certainly around costuming and hairstyling um, with the the um, queue at the back, the long ponytail. Right. Mm-hmm. And we looked into the history of that. It's not very pleasant. So that's something we're looking to change. We will change. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I think what our Chinese dance doesn't do, it's actually not really that Chinese. It, it's more a dance that mimics the two aunties that you see in Act One. And right. actually, I think we should either do that more strongly and move away from a Chinese divert, or right. actually move away from that idea and really celebrate the part of the Chinese culture that I think Peter Darrow was trying to touch on. But yeah. it's got to be one or the other, in my view. So I don't think it needs to disappear or go away, but mm-hmm. um, it does require us to ask questions, take time, research, and take action is the most important bit. Right. But it also seems like an opportunity to educate your audience for people who might be questioning why things are changing. So. Bravo. Um, Matthew Bourne. <laughs> You've worked with Matthew Bourne. I got to see um, Island Flames. So that's the update of La Sylphide, right? I loved it. Now, that, there you have the example, don't you? There you yes, go. yes. So, um, you know, in, in addition to putting the dance in a modern setting, um, he's also done gender switching with his version of Sleeping Beauty and Swan Lake, um, as well as changing traditional male-female pairings. So um, do you feel that these kinds of changes are challenging the traditional audience a little bit too much? Do you feel like this is a good way to nudge them forward? Um, Or is this helping to expand your audience? I think it's helping to expand the audience is the very short answer. Mm -hmm. But um, I do have a little story about Highland Fling because I'd really, I always think saying I would bring Highland Fling to Scottish Ballet, I think almost certainly got me the job because 
Matthew has never, ever, and still has never allowed any other company other than his own to do one of his full length ballets. So I am so proud that we are the only company Matthew will allow to do um, one of his full length ballets. And it had to be Highland Fling. Yeah. And so the amount of people that wrote to me when I got the job saying, I'm a lovely production of Lassell Feed, would you like to do it? <laughs> and I remember thinking, no, I really wouldn't because I'm half Scottish, my mum's from Scotland. And, you know, Lassell Feed is charming, it's lovely. It's yes. a very pretty ballet, but it is two Danish composers and a Danish choreographer with a view on Scotland, and it's really not very Scottish at all. So <laughs> for us, it's a little bit, you know, it's like the top of the shortbread tin, you know, for us. Uh, it's charming. There's nothing wrong with it, but it is, it's right. not really Scotland of today. And so... Um, I thought Highland Fling, that is Scotland of today. Right. Anyway, I brought it to the company and I was sitting on opening night and there's um, lots of uh, really funny tunes played as the audience come in. Donald, where's your trousers and things like that. And uh, it's really funny and just completely irreverent. And the set is tartan. There's right. a Celtic Rangers football thing going on. It starts in a nightclub, but, but in a gent's toilet by a urinal. I mean, it just, it's so Glasgow. It's so funny. It's even got a Glasgow kiss in it, which is a headbutt. Um, oh. <laughs> Glasgow kiss. Yeah. So, and I just, I remember before the curtain went up, because I just started with the company, I just thought, oh God, this is either just going to sink like a rock because, you know, there were a ton of Glaswegians in the audience. Right. They're going to love it. And, you know, they loved it. They, they loved that the humour was there, that someone had got them. Someone had understood what it was to be Glaswegian and what it was to have that Scottish sense of humour, the self-deprecation. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, and that's what's brilliant about Matthew is he's a brilliant storyteller fabulous at characterising um, situations and people. Mm -hmm. So it's been a huge hit for us and continues to, to be a hit, yeah. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. And I was also thinking, you know, it's like the, the perfect high art uh, evening for the Fringe Festival. Yeah. What I love is, I, because obviously it uses the original Lasso Feed score. Right. And so once you're asking about sort of more traditional audiences, you know, once, and we did have lots of traditional audience members watching it, but I think it's so funny. Act One is so hysterically funny. You'd really have to be quite a sourpuss not to uh, right. get into that. So I think by the end of Act One, they've had such a great time. And then halfway through Act Two, I, I don't even remember, but it just goes really sad really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I love it in the theatre because I know it's coming and everyone's having a great time. And then she just comes out with, you know, he's ripped her wings off and there's blood everywhere. And you just, it's silent from there on into the end and people are crying at the end. So it's a really wonderful piece. It is, it is. 
Scottish Ballet, you have your outreach program that you mentioned for people who are living with dementia, Parkinson's, um, other physical challenges. Can you talk a little bit more about that part of your outreach program and its reception in your community? Yeah, with pleasure. So this is really um, the part of the um, company that kind of came to me as a surprise when I joined Scottish Ballet. Uh, it's led by a really dynamic director called Catherine Cassidy. Um, and we work very closely, again, very aligned, um, well, very integrated actually to the artistic programming and the artistic process, um, which is quite key. So that everything that we put out through our engagement team is absolutely wedded to the repertoire. Um, again, there's that sense of relevance. Um, you know, what we're seeing on stage is going into our communities and the communities come to see us on stage and that circle's completed. And where it became a real pleasant surprise for me was I'm humbled by how much we learn as artists from our engagement work. So those mm -hmm. people that we engage with will, you know, they become part of our Scottish Ballet family in less adverse times, they are in our studios while we're rehearsing and working. We have, you know, with the Dance for Parkinson's program, we have a coffee morning with them so that, and we time it so that when the dancers have finished class, the dancers are, you know, socializing with people from the Dance for Parkinson's group. Um, you know, that kind of engagement is, that is distinctive because it goes beyond just working with people living with specific challenges in their lives. It's, I, I'll never forget, we've got two really compelling stories. One is of a, a gentleman um, who, it was his carer actually that said, I love him coming here because on the days he's got a dance for Parkinson's class, we know and his grandchildren know we get a good day out of him and oh. that is so impactful right because you know it goes yeah. beyond the individual it, it's it's impacting their wider network support network um and then the other really amazing story was we had a gentleman in watching a rehearsal and it was my right of spring which is quite an unusual right of spring it's only got three people in it um, the last section obviously it's a solo, um, as it often is. And it's in a very um, claustrophobic set. It's just a sort of like a white bowl, if you like, but in, absolutely gigantic. And none of the cast can get off the stage. It really is very claustrophobic. And the performer was just dancing the last, you know, manic solo. And this gentleman told us that he loved it because that's how he feels in his head sometimes. Oh. And he said he, he, he recognised that he can, he can move in his head, but he's not seeing it in the mirror. And sometimes he can move big in his head. And again, it just, you know, and I choreograph that ballet and I now see my ballet differently because of that interaction. So the engagement work we do is vital. It's a two-way street and we, we wouldn't be Scottish Ballet if we didn't do it. Yeah. Do you think that this is something that other companies can model their own programs on? Yeah, I mean, there are other companies doing fantastic work in these areas, in, in, especially around neurological conditions. Yeah. 
I think the one link that we have that's a little bit extra is it really is embedded in the heart of the company. It's not a bolt-on. It's not in a department down the corridor. Mm-hmm. You know, Catherine is in the artistic team's office. The dancers, we have a dancers education group, which I set up, which the, it allows the dancers to get formal education training of, of how to work with people within communities through dance. Oh, fantastic. But while, you know, the payoff is they get to work with the engagement team. So that, you know, sense of understanding becomes really important. So I think that's that's the extra little bit. Yeah. That that just seems like it's it's so meaningful to everybody who participates in the program from your end, as well as for the uh, the community members that you're serving. So um, for a little bit of fun, uh, I read in a book that medical experts cited professional footballers as the only people who expend slightly more energy than uh, ballet dancers, slightly more strength. Uh, Would you care to comment on that for our listeners who don't know so much about ballet? Absolutely. It's a lie. We work much harder than football. (laughs) (laughs) I love the statistic. It's probably true. The reason is because we, in our our, um, support of the dancers and their physical therapy, you know, we align ourselves often with football and, and there's lots of shared knowledge, which is great behind the scenes between, you know, football teams, um, performance medicine and ours, because a lot of footballers get ankle, shin and lower joint injuries, which is what dancers get. So we share a lot of the knowledge. But what I always think is, you know, footballers, they're on the pitch, certainly British football, soccer, they're on the pitch right. for 90 minutes Um our dancers are on the stage for 90 minutes, sometimes two times a day. Right. Footballers is once a week. And <laughs> if the dancers have a performance in the evening, they'll have done six hours of training that day as well. So that's where I think the scales are a bit tipped in our favour. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, you, you make it look pretty yeah, <laughs> and really? effortless. Right. That's the thing. That's the difference between the athleticism is, you know, you want to see your footballers struggling and showing the strength. You don't want to see that from your dancers, right? No, not at all. (laughs) Okay. So uh, last question. Um, Do you have a passion project that you'd like to see realized by Scottish Ballet? And is this anything that we'll be seeing anytime soon? Oh, I do know. I was dreading this question because... I I just hate jinxing things, right? So oh, gotcha. I, I didn't talk about the Snow Queen for years. Like, no, everyone was like, a Snow Queen? Have you really wanted to do a Snow Queen? It's like, yes, I've wanted to do it for years, but I couldn't say anything. So it's a bit of a tricky one, that. Um, I do, I'll tell you what I will say is I don't actually feel I've got a lot of ballets in me, really, ever at one time. Um, and then... You know, sometimes just a story will bubble up from years ago. Um, So Snow Queen, I thought about many, many, many years ago. And it's more, I'm very driven by music. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's probably some music that I'm still dying to do. Martini's Double Piano Concerto, I love, and I know I will do that one day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I've been listening to it for probably 15 years now. So I, you know, I know it inside out. But interestingly, with music, once I've created to it, I just, I can't hear it again. It's like, I, I don't, I don't know. I just don't listen to it again, ever. Huh. I mean, it's a bit tricky with a nutcracker and that kind of thing, but yeah. some of the, you know, I, I've cre I created a work to Poulenc's double piano concerto and I love Poulenc's music. I, I mean, I adore it. I'm a huge fan, but I kind of can't listen to that concerto. If it comes on the radio, I, the radio goes off because it's kind of been so full to get it out and, and see movement to it. Sure when you're trying to to create a choreography to it that you've just listened to it just so many times that you're just like no I I never you know those songs from our childhood that I mean I'm a kid of the 80s so just forgive me for one minute but you know a bit the stuff I listened to in the 80s and 90s that you know I just need to hear one note and I know what that song is right. and there's probably been a gap of probably 15 to 20 years, right? I just can't listen to it anymore. And then it does come back again, doesn't it? You, so I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the kind of come back. The fold back. Oh gosh. Well, thank you so much for being so gracious about answering all these questions. It's Great questions, thanks. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm like every other kid who got thrown into ballet class at age seven or eight. And I just, stayed despite having a, a different track in my in my university career but um yeah it's it's been a thrill I'm so glad you're fans of the ballet though that's great it's really fabulous and I'm really pleased you you know I could see from the questioning and hear it too you really get who Scottish ballet are and that means a lot you know it's uh we're not a huge company, but I think we we do say some great things and, and do some great things. Um, and especially now I'm really sensing around driving anti-racism in ballet is quite lonely. Um, so it's lovely to, to have a platform to talk about it as well. So that's really great that it's recognized and spoken about. It's really important. Well, you know, I did get to see Misty Copeland dance at Lincoln Center a couple of years ago, and the audience was entirely different than it normally is. And it was just so exciting to see little black girls all dressed up with their moms, with their grandmas, with their aunties, and being excited to see somebody up there who looked like them. You know, and it's it's not something that you get to see that kind of change in front of you every day. Yeah. And, you know, which is fantastic. But, you know, we've also got to get teachers that, you know, are recognizably um, impactful and relevant and pianists and choreographers and, yes. you know, and on and on. So, you know, still tons of work to do. But, yeah. I get, I'm on the board of Ballet Black, which is a London-based um, ballet company. Um, they're just wonderful. They've been going for 20 years with the sole mission to become irrelevant. I love that mission. <laughs> so that, and, and, and they're still going because they still need to be there. And um, 
when I go to Ballet Black's performances, when I go to see our, our company, I say our because I'm on the board, it's not mine. But when I go to see Ballet Black, you know, I just take one look around and go, this is everyone that all boards are talking about and doing focus groups on how to bring in a diverse audience. You just need diversity on the stage, in the storytelling, in the research, right. the way you involve people and that's how we're going to get it, I think. That's great. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a You're pleasure. Welcome. I just, I hope when we come to LA and, you know, we, we have been to LA. Um, so hopefully, oh, two years time, fingers crossed. I think we were meant to be at the Kennedy Center this year. And then obviously I think next year is looking difficult, but hopefully the year after that, we'll see. Yeah. Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> Well, again, thank you both so much for being on the show today. Chris, is there a website or something that people can go to see some of your upcoming virtual events or anything like that? Yeah, if you go to scottishballet.co.uk and you can click on SBTV and we've got tons of short films and dance films and health videos as well, which is really great. Um, So you can join in as well. Perfect. Thank you again so much for being on the show today. Bethany, thanks so much for being my co-host. My pleasure. You've been listening to and watching the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles podcast. Again, thank you both so much. And we will see you guys next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, visit www.standrewsla.org. And don't forget to like our Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube channels as well. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.